Hi, I'm Jody, And I'm Allison. I'm Ann. And I'm Esme. And you're listening to The Bloom Saloon. It's a Judy Bloom book club. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> we have two guests here today from the Stuck in Stony Brook podcast, Esme and Anne. Welcome! Hello! Thank you. We're super excited to be here. I love this crossover. Yeah, it's very exciting. It was so wild how we all kind of linked up. Esme, you reached out and you were like, hey, I do a podcast. We also read teen books on our podcast. And I live in the Bay Area. And I think I'm actually down the street from one of you because we had mentioned an art car, right? Zebra car. The zebra car. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that guy lives like three blocks from me. So close. And he has a zebra garage door. It's like a gorgeous zebra jungle situation on his garage door. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I live directly between Jody and Allison. Hilarious. Yeah. What are the odds? Allison ended up buying Girl Scout cookies from Esme. It just really all came together. Um, And where do you live again? I live in Altadena, which is, it's basically L.A., It's uh, Mm -hmm. about 15 miles northeast of downtown L.A. So we're all California girls. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We are. I feel like I'm still like a a Northern California girl at heart, but I somehow live in Southern California. (laughs) Yeah. Continues to surprise her. Just like (laughs) Dawn Schaefer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So this leads us to your podcast, Stuck in Stony Brook. Y'all read the Babysitter's Club books one by one and discuss them very smartly. Oh, thank you. We try. (laughs) Y'all, you're so smart. I love your podcast. Let's hear a little bit more about what you do. So you want to hear about how how we uh, created this brilliant and intelligent podcast? (laughs) Yeah. Tell us all about it. Please. Well, I I believe it started as me. Um, well, first, as me and I have known each other since the second grade. And yep. we grew up reading these books together very obsessively. And now she has voraciously. Rare. Yeah. And now she has two daughters of her own who are reading the books. And as she was reading them, she just called me on the phone one day, as she often does, and was like, hey, can you help me remember all the families in Stony Brook? I was like, go. How many can you do? Top of your head. Pikes, Newtons, Marshalls, go. <laughs> Johansons. Yeah. I was like, ah, I don't know. So that just kind of started this ongoing conversation about the Babysitter's Club. I guess what you really hadn't discussed in, in so much detail in, in years, probably. Yeah, we would make a reference here and there, but we hadn't really started diving into it. But also I had this central question that as I was reading the books, I started getting really upset about Mrs. Pike's family planning. I'm assuming that you're... Did you read them, Allison? Also, I know Jody read some of them. I did. Not as voraciously or obsessively, but I, I did, yeah. Okay, so the Pikes, you'll remember, are the, like, giant family with eight children. Yeah. Um, the spider. Yeah, they called them spider. Wow, good <laughs> mm-hmm. reference, Jody. I do remember <laughs> a lot. <laughs> That's when the Australian family comes to town and they get called Crocs. Um, but... <laughs> Um, so the fact that she has eight kids, fine, you know, whatever they're, they're Irish. It's the eighties. You could have eight children, but I really, as a mom myself started realizing that there's Mallory and then the triplets are born one year later. And then she just keeps going. She's got a one-year-old baby and newborn triplets. And she's like, 
all right, Mr. Pike, let's go again. And then they have another one a year later and another one a year later. And that just seemed completely unbelievable to me. And I wanted There's to no know way. more. There's, There's no, no way. way. No. <laughs> There's just no way. I just, and, and they're not like super religious or something, you know, they're, they're portrayed as like the really liberal family in Stony Brook and they're like cool and chill. And so we just, we realized we had a lot of questions. And so we started, Anne and I have long thought that other people should be amused by us, but then we've like (laughs) had the thought, well, no, it's just because we've known each other over 30 years and it's probably not that interesting to other people, but, um, it was quarantine and there wasn't much else to do. So we decided to give it a try because we have sort of different specific angles. And the, the third person who's on our podcast who couldn't be here tonight is actually my niece, Emily, who is 10 years younger than us and, you know, had my books passed down and read all of them voraciously herself. And Emily now has a PhD in feminist political theory. Um, and a lot of people talk about how the Baby Search Club books were so feminist. And we were like, are they? We're not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm an adolescent clinical psychologist. And so I really like to look at sort of what's the developmental psychology that Anna Martin gets right? What does she get wrong? What ages well? What doesn't? And Anne is sort of our Jill of all trades pop culture expert. You want to talk a little bit about your background that's relevant to BSC, Annie? I mean, I don't even know what I do anymore, really, for a job. But uh, I started out as a music journalist um, for many years and was covered all sorts of bands. And then I was, you know, an entertainment editor at a teen magazine. Uh, so I, I had there's 10 years there where I did a lot of teen media. So I'm ver- I was very plugged into just like teen culture um, and all that stuff. So it was it's been fun to reread all these books and kind of be like, wait, like what kind of music do these girls actually listen to? And when they reference their like actor crush, like figuring out who that could be based on like uh, 1986, you know, heartthrobs, which. You know, mm-hmm. we went down that road and where we ended up wasn't very pretty. Yeah, we took us to a dark, <laughs> dark place. Um. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I think as far as books we were reading at that age, Judy and BSC were pretty different, but we all read them at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. they were all mm-hmm. on our bookshelves together. So it really makes sense that we're coming together now mm-hmm. to discuss uh, starring Sally J. Friedman as herself. Sorry, we didn't mention that earlier, y'all, but we're doing the wrap-up episode right here, right now. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. That's that's definitely, I mean, I think that the trifecta for me was Anna Martin, Judy Bloom, and Beverly Cleary. And mm-hmm. you're right, they were just all smushed up next to each other on the shelf. And Sally J. Friedman was definitely... I was going to say it was my very favorite, but then preparing to come on tonight, I was like, mm, it's a four-way tie. I don't think I can, <laughs> I don't think I could say it's that. So but hard. It's so hard, but it's definitely one that Anne and I both read again and again and again. Like our copies look like shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's the, what's the four? I need to know. Oh, um, my four, I don't know if it's the same as Anne's. My four um, would be Sally J., Sheila is my girl, like through and through. Mm-hmm. I love Sheila the Great. Um, I love Iggy's house. Um, and then, of course, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. 
Great choices. Yeah, Esme and I were talking about this earlier, and I definitely veered towards the more sexy Judy Loom books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I mean, Sally J. Friedman was definitely one of my favorites. Um, and as I was rereading this, I, I remember why. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Um, and then, you know, like, Dini and Tiger Eyes and Forever. Those were like, that was definitely, I did not have like parents who taught me about sex. So that was definitely how I learned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yep. uh, and like this book, my mom kind of just put on my bed and, and was like, it just appeared one day and it was like something about you know, my period. And I was like, okay, I guess this is how my mom tells me about my period now. <laughs> Uh, so but I was saying as me like the three things I remember that are like stuck in my head until the day I die about Judy Bloom are the sanitary uh napkin belt which like you know of course um scoliosis yeah I was terrified of getting scoliosis and the the man of war (laughs) yeah which you guys like talked about it was terrifying yeah. I was like, that's what a man of war is? I had no idea. I don't think anyone knew. You know, after Allison did her amazing special report, really explaining that it's multiple organisms in one, yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think of what I pictured in my head, and it wasn't even really a jellyfish. I think what I was picturing when I was a kid was um, like a giant horseshoe crab. <laughs> you know those? <laughs> Jody, that is so bizarre. Like, as you said that, like a bolt of recognition shot through my body. I think that's what I thought it was, too. Right? Like a big brown horseshoe crab. Yeah. Wait, what? How did both of you think that this is what this was? (laughs) Well, because it had to be a scary thing. And horseshoe crabs are like basically living fossils, right? They like haven't changed since ancient times. And I didn't, it doesn't say jellyfish anywhere like i think when i got older i like asked somebody and looked it up but it's not like we had the internet mm-hmm. mm. you know what i feel like because we three were all born in the same year i feel like you guys happened upon the same issue of national geographic at the same time <laughs> and then like and then like immediately read this book <laughs> and that's what you thought of I think that's entirely accurate. That is a really good call. Wow. See, this is what happens when we all get together and talk about Mm -hmm. books we have the foggiest memories of, and it's Mm -hmm. just so wonderful. today is read you a couple listener letters. We each have prepared special reports, you know, as we do here in the Bloom Cocoon. Awesome. How about we start with Dustin's letter? This is a great letter. Okay. And not just because he calls us his favorite podcast. Uh Um, Okay. Hello to my favorite podcast. Don't tell we hate movies. I said that. So I'll be completely honest. I never read Sally as a kid. And when you announced that it was the book, I was kind of disappointed as I was hoping for another fudge entry. 
but fuck, Fudge, this book was amazing. I absolutely enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed listening to you two doing the different voices for the fantasy sequences that Sally had. I laughed harder than I have in ages when Sally wrote to her aunt congratulating her uncle for finally planting the seed. Holy shit. If one of my little family members had written a letter like that to us when we had our first child, I would have framed that in my office until the end of time. I like that Sally seemingly takes no time to go from Mr. Zapruder, Mr. Zabowski, is Hitler to some guy in the park is Hitler. Girl is obsessed. And that determination will suit her well in life. The part that makes me sad is thinking about all these characters as real people and knowing that they're probably all dead. Doughy Bird is 43 in the book, so if he was still alive, he'd be about 120 now. Sally is as old as my grandparents are, and I remember how sad it was. My grandfather lost his dad, and I didn't know where I'm going with this point, but I'm sure super sad, and I need space to vent. This book is damn near perfect, but if I could add to it, I'd open the book with an adult Sally at her father's funeral saying goodbye and then go into her childhood and close out with her being able to let go. If they do a movie of Sally, that'd be the way to go. Thank you all again for a great podcast. God bless. Love another indoor sports. Dustin. It's so true. Uh, I had that thought as well, thinking of these people and decades gone by you know none of the older characters are around anymore and it just really did hit hard did did y'all ever come to that realization oh man that's a that's an interesting way to read a book no that hadn't occurred to me at all i was just like yay we're in the 40s i I didn't think about that at all and i like still now i'm like yeah no (laughs) (laughs) but it is interesting that 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 some of us Dustin and Jody have these thoughts. Mm-hmm. We're just morbid, morbid people. Yeah. I, I totally agree with him that it would be cinematic to have adult Sally looking back. But I was like, oh, I'm glad it, it wasn't like that when I read it as a kid. I would have been like, what is this? Like- yeah, it would have made it seem like a grown up movie. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. Very, It'd be very now and then of it all. <sighs> oh, mm-hmm. that's a classic. <laughs> Dustin also sent in a field correspondence from his daughter Lucy an audio special report about water bugs so I think is a little special bonus we're going to include that at the end of the episode it's really cute and really good oh I can't wait except I hate bugs (laughs) we hate bugs here yeah we've got a letter from Sherry telling us all about her life as a competitive twirler in the 80s. Ooh. She uh, heard us talking about twirling. She needed to tell me all about it. And a uh, little insider info here. Sherry's sixth or seventh grade face is the face of our Bloom Saloon cover image that you see on iTunes and all the places. That's her. This is Sherry. Oh, wow. <laughs> She's super famous. She's so famous. Hi, Jody and Allison. I have fond memories of twirling in the late 70s. My mom was a twirler for her high school in the 50s. She loved it, so she wanted the same experience for her daughters. So in 1977, my mom found my sister Holly and I a twirling teacher. I was seven and Holly was six. We weren't very athletic kids, so this was our sport of choice. 
We met our twirling teacher, Miss Claire, a pretty 20-year-old who loved to stay out late and go to local New Orleans discos. As a seven-year-old, I always imagined she was living some exciting Saturday Night Fever disco dancing life. We adored her. Don't know much of her twirling background, but she was a great teacher, very patient and really good. One of the hardest tricks, throwing the spinning baton high in the air, spin around and catch it, gracefully and without fear of it hitting you. That was really one that showed how skilled you were. They called it a one or a two or a three or a four, named after how many times you could spin around. After a while, I'm not sure how Miss Claire convinced my mom that my sister and I should compete in twirling competitions, but we were really excited about it and were willing to work hard and practice. We were already marching in Mardi Gras parades in the suburbs of New Orleans, which was fun and super exciting most of the time. The not-so-fun parts were long marching routines and dodging manure from the horse-riding cowboy groups that were also in the parade. Twirling, marching, and not stepping in poop became a quest and an art form. We started traveling to competitions on weekends all along the Gulf Coast, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, and Texas. There was even one held at Walt Disney World called The Little Big One for the Juvenile National Majorette Championships. I remember that competition because the champion received a trophy and a huge kid-sized Mickey Mouse stuffed animal. The competition scene was always exciting. Little girls ages 5 to 12 competing in their age groups. It was kind of like a beauty pageant but with batons. My mom made our costumes. Heavily beaded dance outfits, sometimes with fringe. You had to wear white socks and lace-up heads. Your hair was always in a high bun so that you could show off your shoulder roll skills. And of course, a little makeup. Most of the time you twirled with a standard baton, but there were some special twirling routines with fire batons and hoop batons. Shut up. A baton with a hula hoop ring decorated with metallic tape and marabou feathers. Our solo routine consisting of several minutes of twirling moves that always ended in spinning a two. Of course, we were always afraid our competitors could do a three. I did a three once in my life during practice, but it was never able to do it again. We twirled for two years. I eventually stopped because all my friends were doing ballet. They weren't really interested in twirling. I tried ballet class with them and was told by the teacher that I stand too rigid for ballet because I was a twirler. I never (laughs) went back to her class. To this day, I still have my batons and I don't think I will ever get rid of them. It was a really happy time in my life. I do wish that I still had that shiny gold case. Oh, because she mentioned that her uh, Miss Claire got her a shiny gold case. I feel like all baton teachers are named Miss Claire. (laughs) I think you're right. This necessity. Disco dancing Miss Claire. Oh my God, Sherry, this is such a special letter. Twirling is something I really hadn't ever thought about. How about y'all? Well, I gotta say, I I had a baton Uh as a child that I really loved. Like, I loved this baton. And I feel like it was... um, you know, in the 80s, like, I feel like they were targeting, like, aerobics to, like, kids. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, ribbon like, dancers. Get in shape, things girl. Like that. Like, get in yeah. shape, girl. Like, with the streamers and stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think the baton was kind of part of that. And I remember I would just, like, go around the house and do in my figure eights. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, that was the only move I knew. And my, I remember my mom was really good at it. And she was like, you can do this at least. And I was like, oh, uh, okay. Like, I was not one to like practice things. So <laughs> yeah, I was I was pretty into it. And you know, as I was listening to the letter, I was like, man, life used to be so wholesome. I used to like, <laughs> go out in the backyard, with my baton, get on my pogo ball. Oh, maybe, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe play with my skip it. Skip it. <laughs> I can't believe, Jody, that you've never really considered batons much when you're a hula hooper. You know, they don't have much in common. So. Yeah. I feel like they but, do, though. Yeah, I'm with Allison. I feel like it's the same. It's a similar genre. <laughs> like a totally different. Like move, they're adjacent move skill. But no, you're right. You're right. It's very like weirdly specific aesthetic dance yes yeah. <laughs> but I don't think I'd be a good twirler I just don't have good hand-eye coordination um and as a former twirler would you say that you need to be like you need to have a specific kind of dexterity yeah I mean I did play the piano mm-hmm. so I maybe that helped that. me out with my twirling okay. <laughs> like she's gonna brag about the piano now <laughs> My my nimble fingers could really hold that baton quite fluidly. No. No, I think you it's not you just kind of like hold it in your hand, you just kind of move it around. I don't I don't think it's honestly that hard. I think once you get into the like throwing it up in the air and doing a cartwheel and catching it again, that takes, you know, a little bit more skill. Yeah. As, as a non-physically gifted person, I'm going to jump in and say that that's what Anne thinks about every physical activity. She's like, I don't know, you just kind of do it. It's not that hard. So I tried to play with her baton and probably hit myself in the head. So I don't know if it's <laughs> as easy peasy as she's making it sound. I have to say I did some Instagram research and I watched quite a few twirler videos, like competitive twirler videos, and they're very, very, very good and amazing. And they're just artistes. So yeah, I think it probably does. If you're going to go beyond the the standard moves, you probably have to have a skill. Yeah, I wasn't quite there. (laughs) (laughs) So... This leads us into uh, some research I did about twirling and its history. Do y'all do y'all feel like learning a little bit more? Yeah, yes, let's please. stick with oh, twirling. Yes. Twirling. Here is my special report. Uh, some people say, I mean, when I say some people, I mean Wikipedia says twirling originated in Western Europe and Asia. But when I looked at other sources... They frequently listed Africa, Samoa, and other Polynesian countries and Caribbean countries like Haiti. These were not like the batons that we know today. They weren't safety conscious. It was kind of like the bigger and more dangerous, the better. So they were twirling knives, rifles, torches. It was kind of to show your prowess, you know. This was a very male-oriented dance um eventually adopted by the military when they decided it would be cool and very tough looking to twirl rifles during their (laughs) marches you know can you imagine just like the menacing rifle twirler coming at you yeah, that's that's actually extra funny because Anne and I were both in marching band in high school and the the color guard girls did twirl like fake rifles sometimes right and mm-hmm. i have a memory of that yeah i don't know why i didn't question that then i questioned but... it but 
Uh, yeah, so they did, but it was more like what Sherry was talking about. You know, they'd be in like a sequined outfit with, with mm-hmm. some makeup and then twirling like fake rifles. So fake firearms, yeah. That's yep. interesting. That's where it came from. It does sound very terrifying if I'm an enemy. Uh, <laughs> I just like to imagine, you know, like two like revolutionary war style, like two like marching armies coming up on each other and they have a twirl off. <laughs> Yeah, you're just like you're just so dazzled by the twirling. You you uh-huh. like forget what you're doing. Exactly. I started to look into why marching bands are even a part of military culture in the first place, but that was a whole other thing. So I left it at that. But let's just, you know, let's just accept that. <laughs> this was popularized by people who wanted to fight. So the rifles eventually evolved into maces, what they called maces, which are um you know, big, long metal sticks with kind of a ball on the top, a decorative ball. And you see a lot of drum majors in marching bands using them today. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember, you know, being in New Orleans as a kid and all all the Mardi Gras parades would have these amazing drum majors right up front. They would do high kicks. They would do the splits. They had this big mace they would throw around. It was just fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's still a staple but over the years the maces were made smaller and smaller and smaller and lighter and lighter for better balance and twirl accuracy i guess they were trying to get like very specific with some of their twirl moves and this was around the same time that women ladies drum majorettes came on the scene Mm. the late 1800s around 1890 this was a few decades after the civil war This Confederate major, Mr. Reuben Webster Millsaps, he's also the founder of Millsaps College in Mississippi, Uh, he started having twirlers in his college marching band. (laughs) I ran into some heated internet disagreements on who really popularized twirling in the U.S. A lot of people say it was uh, Major Millsaps, but other people say it was this major C.W. Booth from Chicago he was a big uh, twirl head, <laughs> and eventually <laughs> he formed the All-Star Twirling Club in Chicago, which included the first official majorettes in the 1930s. Oh, so it was pretty new in Sally's time then. Yeah, I, she was on the forefront of twirl culture. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's interesting because there's a big rivalry over the twirling birthplace is it chicago or is it mississippi i don't know if we'll ever find out and so fast forward a bit to sally's era maybe a little bit beyond twirling hit its peak in the 1950s when the national twirling hall of fame was established (laughs) and this led to twirling fever okay y'all there were twirl summer camps conferences every kind of tv show that had guests on it did some kind of twirling exhibition i mean i've seen videos of these twirl camps and it's so good it's just like hundreds of kids and teens of all ages practicing their moves and dropping them like left and right and things flying in the air and hitting people on the head it's just beautiful chaos Oh my god! All that- day, like how? Like how are there? How is there that much to do? 
I was just thinking the same thing. I had this boyfriend in high school. I made him take ballroom dancing classes with me. And he was like, it's amazing what human beings create to amuse themselves. Once <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and that's what I was just thinking when you were saying that, Jody. Yeah, I get it. Oh, it does seem like fun. <laughs> And then, so yeah, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, all these state and national competitive associations formed. Um, It was finally becoming something that girls didn't just have to do at halftime or at the county parade anymore. This was becoming a sport in and of itself. I think there's a lot of parallels between twirling and cheerleading as far as how it became its own competitive sport. It wasn't just for the girls to have something to do while the boys play football, you know? And I think cheerleaders originally were all men also. They were were called yell leaders. And it was was like a prestigious man thing to do. And then, you know, women came and ruined it. So all the guys had to stop. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. So that's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) So around... uh, 1972 is when we start seeing a decline in twirl popularity. That's not to say it disappeared, but it just wasn't like the big craze anymore. And a lot of people say that it is due to Title IX being passed in 1972. Oh, so you didn't just have to twirl. You actually had other athletic options. Exactly. And I know we have a lot of listeners who aren't in the U.S. So just really quick, Title IX was... uh, it said schools and any institution that got federal funds couldn't discriminate based on sex. So this really, we saw it play out in sports, especially in school, public schools and universities, like girls were able to get on the soccer field, you know, they could do all the things. So, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head as they were playing more sports, the batons got tossed aside, but I will say There is a strong twirling scene today. Uh, Twirl Instagram, like I said, is pretty poppin'. Allison, I think you might need to learn, look into twirl TikTok. I'm sure it's a very fun place. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Allison's our TikTok, uh, a resident TikToker over here. Fantastic. You can come talk to all the teenagers I work with. Obsessed. I, I I can't help them. I'm in the same, like, TikTok holes they're in. Mm Mm-hmm. And just to cap off my special report, I want to tell you about um, ESPN. They host uh, Twirl Mania every year at Disney World. It's a big deal. And the current powerhouse countries in the twirl scene are France, Italy, Japan, and the U.S. And I looked up some famous former majorettes. Sheryl Crow, (laughs) Eva Longoria, Diana Ross... Stevie Nicks and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> they were all twirlers. What? That could you imagine getting them all together? I know. Like that, I was just like group of that. people is just like a hilarious group. That's amazing. So that's what I got. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> Y'all, I also wanted to mention, I I forgot to tell you earlier that I'm drinking um 
the concoction that Sally made of creme de cacao, by the way, and it's delicious. Just casually, secretly drinking creme de cacao. Are you drinking an actual creme de cacao or are you drinking cocoa powder and whiskey? (laughs) Yeah, cocoa powder, whiskey, and I didn't have cream, so I just put milk in a blender and hope to cream it up a little bit, but... (laughs) It's really good. Oh, I was just going to say, is it foul? No, it's, it's good. Allison, next time you come into the cocoon and we record in person for the first time in a year and a half, we're, yeah. I'm going to make this. I'll dip an Oreo in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like this commitment. I know. I'm really impressed. <laughs> we love our Judy food here. We have to try it all. We, yeah, we're uh, – and uh, – we said that Anne talks about pop culture on Stuck in Stony Brook, but eighty percent of the pop culture she talks about is eighties junk food that Claudia hides in her That's bedroom. That's true. So we're her ho hos and her ding dongs. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If you want to hear the ring ding versus ding dong controversy, <laughs> tune in. Yeah. <laughs> I do. That's so good. about some things. So, you know, Jody and Allison helpfully sent us some things that different Bloomheads were interested in. And one of them was sex ed in the 1940s, which I also found interesting. One of the, I mean, there's so many great subplots in this book, but one that really breaks my heart is poor Bubbles getting pregnant and then Mm. the family sitting Shiva. You know, I work with teenagers. I really love teenagers. And so it's a really, it's just super poignant and sad. But the theme of sex education is all through this book. You know, Sally's obviously very interested and there's some things that fly over her head and some things that don't. And obviously she's nursing her first big crush with Peter. There's just a lot going on. And so I can see why people asked about it. Um, And so I took a little bit of a deep dive into it. And what was really interesting to me, we're so used to all of us having been raised in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, this idea of sex education being a really controversial thing. Um, But that really doesn't start in the U.S. until the 60s, until the sexual revolution. Wow. Prior to that, sex education started, well, some form of kind of moral education started back in the 1800s. You know, what we would think that would look slightly more like sex education that any of us would remember started in the 1910s and 20s. Um, By the 40s, there were kind of two big threads of it. One was that science was really coming in. So before that, it was really more about morality and basically trying to teach kids not to masturbate all the time um, so that they could become productive members of society. Um, But science really came on the scene in this idea of like evidence-based sex education and also teaching that like sex is a part of science and a part of biology Mm. was a huge piece. And so they would show like reel-to-reels and pictures of different animals having sex. So they didn't show actual people because that would have been too salacious. And of course, all of this was super heteronormative, right? So there's nothing... um, there's nothing anywhere about any LGBTQ sex, but they wanted kids to understand like the penis goes in the vagina and this is what happens. And so they would watch like lion sex and like bear sex and stuff in class and then discuss it. And I that feel was like the- I definitely remember 
film strips of animal yeah. sex at some point. Yeah, well, you might, your school may have had them left over from 1946. <laughs> like, dust them <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. So the other big feature, other than this, like, let's be super scientific, because prior to this, they talked about, like, well, sex is between a man and his wife and stuff like that. But they didn't talk so much about, like, the sperm enters the egg and the egg comes from the from the ovary. And all of that was in sort of, quote unquote, modern sex ed in the 40s. And then the other thing they did is they had discussion based classes. So it was about to make sure that everybody understood the biological matters. But it was also like the social dimensions and sort of the gender and sexual worlds that students were in. And so these teachers like Miss Swetnick were, although probably not as young, right, because it is the 40s. So I think a little bit older than Sally's age, were trying to kind of actually talk about personal responsibility and choice. Of course, they wouldn't have talked about anything non-heterosexual, but it really was some kind of agency for girls in a way that that hadn't really been present before. And so talking mm-hmm. about, um, you know, when you choose to do this with your husband in the future, you know, it's in these within these kind of narrow lanes. I'm almost picturing like the bumpers up in a bowling alley, right? So it's like, well, you got to go down this part. But when you do, you get to make these decisions and it's and it's your body, which again, seems sadly sort of, uh, you know, better than a lot of things are in some states in the U.S. today, in places where there's abstinence-only education or where there's no sex education at all because parents have decided that that's not something that should be present in schools, which is the case in a lot of districts in the U.S. currently. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a lot more kind of free-flowing and um, parents expected that kids would talk about it at school. And so that may be also part of the reason, other than her own anxiety, that mom is really frequently like, never you mind, Sally. You know, like when <laughs> Sally asks her like, but isn't Bubbles a good girl? And she's like, mm, I don't want to talk about that. Mm. is that that she sort of expected she would learn about it at school, that both this scientific piece, but also like the fact that sex is sort of deserving of respect and it's this important thing. Um, and also this conflating of it with love, that it's like this, right. this high form of expressing love to another person. Totally. That's so interesting. Yeah, I can imagine in mom's mind, she's like, Wait until sixth grade, second semester, you'll get there. Sally. Right. You know, just exactly. Like, don't bother me until then. Yeah. Totally. Huh. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting because we're just so used to it being this thing that we're all fighting over, right? And right. that it's a conservative flashpoint of don't leave that out of the classroom. And in the 40s, they were just like, yeah, please teach my kid about that. I don't want to have that conversation. Yeah. I don't want to deal with that. Exactly. <laughs> Wow, my mind is kind of blown right now. <laughs> I know, I know. But then it starts to, that science piece that I think is so cool starts to fade later in the 40s. So in 1947, the American S- Social Hygiene Association is formed. Mm. Um, and there's like these social purity and social hygiene movements that come together to redraft a plan for sex education. So that it now includes more like education for personal and family living. That's a quote I have here. To, right. to guide adoles- adolescents to make wholesome decisions, to respect the moral laws and customs of society. So you, you start to, yeah. 
The judgment comes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So you start to get the kind of early tentacles of what will like blow up once the summer of love happens. But it's still still assuming that they'll also teach the kind of basic facts. Mm-hmm. I'm still stuck on the fact that they showed animals having sex. <laughs> I know. Same. <laughs> I actually feel like that might have been helpful for me because I was like taught like abstinence only like terrible Mm. Southwestern Ohio sex ed that like most kids were like opting out of like it was terrible. I feel like that might have been actually helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Get some information, right? Something like some mechanics of it all. Yeah. You guys, there's just a little animal sex sidebar. There's this (laughs) like pod of feral cats that live behind my neighbor's house right across this Carolyn's house like she's been on the podcast before mm-hmm. so she's got these cats living in her yard they've had two litters of kittens in the past month I've, I'm dealing with rehoming them all right now but a few weeks ago uh our friends Lizzie Katie and Beth were over and just as everybody was walking out to go to their cars we see a cat threesome in Carolyn's driveway <laughs> Oh my god. And we all without even like hesitating or consulting each other, we all just like started taking photos. <laughs> See? Apparently we're hungry for this kind of information. There's something fascinating yeah. about it. And I'd never seen like a threesome. There yeah. was Well, that would not have been shown in 1946. <laughs> it was so like do you remember that scene from Boogie Nights where um filming one of the porn scenes and there's just this long shot of like the the camera people and the gaffer and they're holding the boom mic and they're all just staring like what so it was this it was this situation but with cats wow can you send me those photos yeah i will and then we ended up changing our little thread on our on our group chat to mostly animal porn (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So yeah. So that was something that that was something that stood out to me. I think may, huh. maybe we should throw back and forth, Anne. I think you have something related to sex education as well. I do. But quick thought. What if people's first encounters with sex that were like like seeing animals having sex, they then turned into furries? That is a great that is a great point though. <laughs> is- that's a great point. Yeah, see. Yes, we don't. Come on. This is what happens anytime I get Anne in front of new people. They're like, yeah. I immediately go to that MTV Real Sex show. Remember that one? Oh, um, yeah. The Pony Play episode. Yeah. That, that one's famous. Iconic. <laughs> what if they were, they were, they saw bears, you know, doing it? Or ponies, well, horses. Apparently, like all children in the United States from 1940 to 1955 did. So that explains Maybe a lot. I'm a special report on furries to support this. Maybe the next time we're on. Okay. <laughs> all about it. The the next time, right, guys? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Definitely. Anytime. <laughs> So speaking of sex ed, um, 
I'm going to talk about boobies. Ooh. Woohoo. Yeah. Towards the end of the book, they start talking about how Douglas is going to go see the outlaw. Oh, no, he's not. Oh, yeah. Well, his mom's like, no way. And he says something like, it's not like I've never seen a breast, you know. And she's like, Douglas. And he's like, well, suppose I want to be a doctor. I'm going to have to see plenty of them. And his mom says, this has nothing to do with being a doctor. Some of your fans were wondering about this movie, so I did a little research on it. The Outlaw was a Western movie produced and directed by the famously eccentric uh, millionaire Howard Hughes. And um, he handpecked a then unknown 19-year-old named Jane Russell with no acting experience to be the love interest in this Wait, film. you said 19? She was 19. Which I guess in like the early 40s was, you know, she should have been married and had a child by then probably. But like I've seen the movie posters and I would have guessed she was at least 31. <laughs> So well, right, interesting. Yeah, I mean, she was very. Uh, she was had an ample bosom, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what she kind of became famous for. So the movie was just kind of a western. It was about Billy the Kid and Doc Holliday, and Jane played the love interest. Um, her name is Rio. And Howard Hughes, upon looking at you know dailies and the footage. He kept on thinking how her breasts weren't being shown off enough. And he he wanted her to appear as if she wasn't wearing a bra underneath her blouse. And in the movie, she wore a lot of like loose peasant like blouses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like 1940 bras are like pretty like, you know, there's a lot of material on them and offered like a lot of support. So he, you know, he was kind of famous for being also you know, somewhat of an engineer. So he like created this cantilevered levered bra with, with underwire. And it was this crazy contraption where it kind of like held her breasts up um, and supported them as if they were in a bra, but like, you know, without like the material on it. I can't picture that. I know. I'm, I, I don't think I know what a cantilever is, but <laughs> You know, it's like, it's like, basically, it's like, uh, you know, sometimes when you see a house that's like sticking out into like the ocean off a cliff, but it's like being held up by like a the beam. Yeah. Horizontal beams. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. basically he tried to do that with her boobs. Um, oh, so there's like a shelf. Yeah. yeah kind of like a shelf. <laughs> So he made this, he engineered this bra, but, you know, Jane Russell has said in her um, autobiography that she actually didn't wear it because it was so uncomfortable. No. (laughs) That was uncomfortable. Put your boobs on a shelf. It doesn't feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she she wore her own bra and she just kind of used tissue to cover it to make it look like she wasn't wearing a bra underneath her white like blouse. So this movie was basically, the movie wasn't very good, but it became very famous for kind of like, you know, like in this book says it became well known for her breasts to get the movie produced. And in theaters, all these movies have to be approved by something called the product code administration. 
just to make sure it's like, you know, there aren't, you know, things in it that are, are going to be offensive. Yeah, it's like standards for TV. Standards, yeah. yeah. And the outlaw definitely violated a bunch of codes in 1941. <laughs> in a memo, a member of this administration said, in my more than 10 years of critical examination of motion pictures... I have never seen anything quite so unacceptable as the breasts of the character of Rio. Throughout almost half of the picture, the girl's breasts, which are quite large and prominent, are shockingly emphasized and in almost every instance are very substantially uncovered. <laughs> That's so rude. I know. So, you know, I read a, I read a handful of articles about this and it was like... If you look at the movie posters, she's always bending over or like laying on her back or like her arms are up, like her boobs are always kind of like pushed to the forefront. Yeah. So there was just, you know, it was it was being censored. They're like, you can't you can't release this. You need to edit all these parts out. The Roman Catholic Church was one of the movie's most vocal opponents. So in 1941, basically, when he was trying to get this movie out, Pearl Harbor happened. So Howard Hughes kind of like forgot about the movie and he turned his attention to making planes. Mm. So kind of got shelved for a few years. So fast forward to 1946 to, you know, when this book is taking place pretty much, um, he's trying to get the outlaw back in theaters, but the censors haven't forgotten about it. They're still like, no, you still can't release it. But he was just like, fuck those guys. I'm Howard Hughes. So he started this whole new publicity campaign, which included taking out billboards that said, how would you like to tussle with Russell? And Ooh. order the two greatest reasons for Jane Russell's rise to stardom. Rude. <laughs> so rude. Um, and this is the best, worst thing is... He got a plane, like a Skyrider plane, to fly, spelling out the outlaw, and drew two large circles with a dot in the middle of each of them. Oh, shit. It says in the sky the outlaw was like boobies. That's the thing. Like, it's just so childish in a, <laughs> in a sense of just like boobs. <laughs> Did you know there are boobs? Yeah. Boobs. It's so fifth grade, right? <laughs> yeah. And it just became, that's why now I understand why that just by even saying the movie title, The Outlaw, like their mom was just like, you can't see that because it was such a censored, controversial movie just because you just didn't see women's breasts then on film. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, mm. those those 38 double Ds, man. <sighs> wow. I still can't believe she was 19. I don't yeah. Know. Everybody looked older in the 40s, it's though. true. I know. That's the thing. And and like you were saying, you know, like, my so my grandma was Sally's age. And by the time my grandma was 19, she was married with a kid, you know? Mm-hmm. She was a full lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boobs. Yeah. Well, no wonder. I mean, Douglas is entirely the target audience, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. that's that's who it's appropriate for. I mean, uh, obviously, adult men were also happy to go. But, like, that marketing seems, like, right aimed at 15. <laughs> He's going straight from animal sex to the outlaw. Right. I mean, you got to in- get initiated somehow. I also <laughs> love that it was not a great movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was Aww. not a good movie. Aww. 
sad. Howard Hughes was not like a, a very good filmmaker. <laughs> no. Turns out. It turns out infinity money does not always make the best artistic choices. Right? I mean, yeah. he was he was like that era's Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You're so right. What a good observation. Please, let's knock on wood. Elon does not come out with a movie anytime soon. Oh, I mean, he's probably oh. already working on his. I mean, he was just on SNL. Yeah. Was like really pleased with himself about it, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I started doing some research into the Goodyear blimp also. Oh. And I found out that Howard Hughes actually advertised the outlaw on a Goodyear blimp. And I have a photo of it that I can Whoa! send you guys. Thank you. Yes. Amazing. That is a good Judy synchronicity moment. It is. I was very happy with Google. I love when that happens. <laughs> I had a weird Judy synchronicity moment uh, the other day. So Tyler and I were watching The Sopranos for the first time ever. I don't know how we never. Oh, it's so oh my good. God. It's so good. I don't know how we never really got into it. Yeah. Can I tell you that we watched that over during the pandemic and then I I found a pair of the Sobranos sweatpants and I got them for my husband for Christmas. <gasps> oh, that's such a good idea. That's really good. Okay, off to Etsy right now. <laughs> but we're yeah, we're still in the first season, like very early days. But there's a scene uh, where the family's in the kitchen and the wife is talking about how like a bunch of their mob buddies got busted in a bordello. And that's the only time I've heard the word bordello in real life outside of this book. And so my ears pricked up. And then it was such it was such a Judy moment because the the little brother goes, what's a bordello? And the mom's like, oh, we don't talk about that in this house. And then Tony's going off about how in this house we don't discuss sex. And then Meadow's like, it's the 90s, Jed. Like, we need to talk about this stuff. And he goes, in this house, it's the 50s. We don't talk about that. (laughs) And then she finally breaks it to her brother. She's like, it's a whorehouse, stupid. (laughs) It was just like, wow, this moment. I'm treasuring it forever oh there's a judy fan on that writing staff for sure right exactly has to be can we just i know you all went through everything chapter by chapter which is a beautiful luxury by the way ann and i were talking about the fact that ann and martin writes some quote-unquote you know real novels too that are quite good but compared to like your average babysitter's club book this is much much better right like what do you mean quote unquote (laughs) real novels as me i mean non-series non-serialized right like i just mean you know like corner of the universe and bummer summer and like oh i remember bummer summer Yeah. yeah so books that she wrote that you know missing sense monday that were not like cranked out one a month over 15 years that's what i mean by real novels Got it. So not going to. Martin, she didn't mean it. Yeah. Don't. Please don't come for me, Anna Martin. We love you. Like, (laughs) but um, it was just such a treat to like, this is so perfectly formed and like just start to finish is just like such just so beautifully told. I know you've already discussed how it's super autobiographical, but it doesn't even need to be autobiographical. I feel like she paints this picture so beautifully and I'm always looking for you know what sits uh accurately about how kids really are and how kids interact with the world and I just mm. think it's just such an amazing achievement like 
I want I I wish, you know, coming from Babysitter's Club land, I wish there were more books about Sally. But then I'm also really grateful that there aren't because it's just so perfect the way it is. Definitely. I mean, I think you're the perfect person to speak on this, you know, the the way kids react to the world around them and the way they process things. Did you want to talk a little bit more about the Zavodsky letters? Yeah. So, you know, we know that children uh, process trauma through play. Okay, so that's a thing that we've known for a long time. And a lot of that we learned after the Holocaust. And so this there's this concept of intergenerational trauma and that even even though Sally didn't know Lila and Tonta Rose, right? She just knew of them being back in the old country, but it still very much affects her that they were killed in the concentration camps. And we see her processing this back home in New Jersey where she actually wants to play concentration camp. And then we see her managing this across all the Zavadsky letters and her like plans and ways that she and Margaret O'Brien will take Hitler down, right? Um, and <laughs> find him and suss him out. And uh, I I loved your episode with Molly Sanchez, where we got to see a little bit of her amazing 9-11. I, I think she called it 9-11 fanfic, which is also just yep. a funny title in and of itself. But I, I, I also have some, you mentioned the Gulf War, Jody, and I definitely have some diary entries that were like, well, diary, we're at war, you know, yeah, in this yeah. very like earnest way where I'm like, that is not affecting your life. 12 year old as me in Sacramento, California. Like I didn't have family in the military, anything like that, but I was still aware of it. And it like hung heavy, you know, yeah. and I think certainly, obviously that's going to be much more so with Sally. And so I, I went to the psychology literature because I was curious, I, you know, psychology is a baby science compared to other things. And we certainly were not in any good place in 1946 to accurately study this. Um, so mm. um, there's definitely been papers written and there's been case studies and stuff. But what I did find was an, uh, a study about what the, the title of which was Children's Play in the Wake of Loss and Trauma. Um, and it was about kids whose fathers had been killed in 9-11. And this was a study that came out in 2011. The authors are Sassen and Cohen. And they videotaped and observed longitudinally over several years kids playing with their mothers and then playing with a like a researcher, like a confederate. Um, some of them were in the womb when their fathers died. So they weren't even born yet on September 11th. And a lot of them were very, very young. But across the play observations of kids ages 5 to 12, they saw um, like play interactions that were related to worries, queries about death, destruction, risk-taking, um, what they called irretrievability. So like, nope, you can't, that can't undo that, can't go back there. Sort of this oh. processing of like, you can't undo something bad that's happened. Um yeah. And it was just really interesting to me, given Molly's experience, just some of the descriptions of the play were very much like Sally, like they would play September 11th and they would, you know, so mm. it was just really interesting to me that we actually have, you know, a little bit more data on that and that that really is how kids manage stuff. And I just thought that each step of the way, all the different things she does to try to come to terms with this massive thing that happened that is targeting her as a Jewish girl and her family and all of these neighbors 
that are down there in Miami convalescing and the way that she's processing it throughout the book, I just thought was like pitch perfect 100 percent. Yeah, I you know, we've read a lot about Judy and her process, and I've never come across anything mentioning Judy doing any like child psychology research. She just mm-hmm. innately knows these things, or maybe mm-hmm. she even somehow has this amazing memory of what it really felt like. And I know we all have vague memories of what it felt like to be a kid, but I think some people remember more vividly than others. And she just might have this like super strong ability to transport herself. A thousand percent. I think that was the case with both her and Beverly Cleary. I think they just knew, remembered what it was like to be a kid in in a a really, really strong way that not all of us are um, blessed with. Um, Yeah. That's so interesting. Thanks for looking into that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Y'all, y'all talking smart stuff on here. It's <laughs> very welcome. <laughs> We're loving yeah, that's, it. That's just as me. I just talked about boobs. I've got a special report on Esther Williams, who is one of Sally's very, very favorites. Um, And like, I think we all have like a general understanding of like Esther Williams. She was the swimming one, you know, Mm -hmm. she did the swimming. Like Miss Piggy. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I was pretty interested to kind of see how she got into that, like what the culture of that was. Um, And she moved to L.A. from Utah with her family because her older brother, Stanton, um, had been discovered and was going to be a movie star. But he tragically died at 16 from a burst colon. (gasps) No. Which it just sounds like the most horrible thing I could ever imagine. And so her family, her parents had been kind of they they were looking for for something different. They kept traveling out west. They they wanted to be in Hollywood and so they they stayed out there and Esther grew up there, but her family was always really traumatized by this situation. There's there's more trauma that I won't get into. I want to keep it fairly light. But yeah, she she had an interesting upbringing. And when she was a teen, she was a championship swimmer, also a shop girl. She did some modeling for iMagnon, which if anyone's Ooh. ever done any vintage shopping, you run into a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, she was about to go to the Olympics as a swimmer in 1940 when all of that was kind of dashed because of the war, World War II, mm-hmm. um, that we didn't end up going to the Olympics at all. But as she's, you know, working in iMagnon and modeling and swimming, she was discovered um, and asked to audition for this show called Billy Rose's Aquacade. Sounds so good. Sounds so good. So it was like this traveling, swimming show that was just like, just like Miss Piggy, just like, you know, Hail Caesar, that movie where you've got the the swimmers on land jumping in, they're doing dance moves, there's like confetti, it's just like a whole thing. But she actually performed in the Aquacade that was at the World's Fair 
in San Francisco. So the 1940 <gasps> Golden Gate oh, Exposition. Very God, cool. Too bad we missed that. <laughs> I know. It's so, did you know that Treasure Island was actually built for that? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's so wild. So they yeah. were like, okay, they've just built the Bay Bridge. They've just built the Golden Gate Bridge. We've got to have something there to celebrate these like feats of engineering. So we're going to build an island yeah. uh, next to Yerba Buena Island and we're going to have a World's Fair there. And that was also where she had her first marriage was in uh, San Francisco and Los Altos actually just down south. She met a a young guy, a, an up-and-coming doctor from there. But uh, as she was performing, there were also MGM scouts who uh, found her and said, you're going to be a star. And in her contract, there were two clauses. The first was that she got a guest pass to the Beverly Hills Hotel so she could swim in the pool every day. Uh, and the second was that she would not appear on camera for nine months because she needed to get acting, singing, dancing, and diction lessons. So all she could do was swim and look pretty. So they had to uh, help her out. She wrote in her autobiography, if it took nine months for a baby to be born, I figured my birth from Esther Williams, the swimmer, to Esther Williams, the movie actress, would not be much different. Wow. That's good logic. Yeah. She had like a lot and like she had a kind of a classic MGM experience that was super sexist. She was, you know, constantly getting, you know, pushed and pulled in different directions and being, you know, second fiddle in movies to her chauvinistic male Mm -hmm. co-stars. She was actually the first to sing in a movie, The Baby It's Cold Outside Mm. song. Really? A classic sexist anthem um just a strange song um and this was prior to dean martin re-recording this mm-hmm. wow i didn't know she got it first yeah she, she got it first she was married four times so she had her first husband she married in uh san francisco and she said he was smart and handsome and dependable and dull she respected his intelligence, his dedication to a future career in medicine, said he loved me, or so he said, and he even asked me to marry him. Uh, and then she uh, married a guy named Ben Gage, and he was a singer and an actor, and they had three children. Um, and he seemed like a, a terrible guy. He was an alcoholic, and he squandered tons of her earnings. But the most fascinating thing is, during the filming of... Uh, Pagan Love Song, which is a, a movie she made in Hawaii. <laughs> she sure. learned, yeah, totally. She learned she was pregnant with her third child and she needed to notify the studio in California. So uh, they met a guy at the hotel who had a ham radio and they persuaded uh, this man to let them call California, but they didn't realize that with a ham radio that like anyone could listen in. Uh-huh. So she broadcast uh-huh. this news to the entire West Coast. Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just like, you know, back then, normal people couldn't get these like real life glimpses into celebrities mm-hmm. lives, right? Mm-hmm. Like now we have Instagram where people fuck up all over the place. But then that must have been such a big deal totally 
yeah, she made she made all kinds of movies and she did all of her own stunts and she did a lot of these stunts while she was pregnant. <laughs> Um, which is, uh, yeah, water skiing and all kinds of things. She broke her neck filming a 115-foot high dive off a tower for the film Million Dollar Mermaid, which is one of her most famous. She was in a body cast for seven months. Oh, my God. Um, Yeah, she almost nearly drowned because there was a trap door and a tank. All kinds of scary, scary stuff. I'm surprised uh she made it and then she also her third husband was fernando lamas her uh latin Mm -hmm. lover he was you know someone that she had made movies with and had had affairs with but she married him but he sounds like uh the worst so um when they were married they were married for 13 years from 1969 until he died in 1982 and she wasn't allowed to make any movies. Her kids weren't allowed to live with them. She mm. just had to be like completely subservient to him. So he sounds terrible. Um, but then her fourth husband was a guy named Edward Bell. He seemed fairly nice. Um, but I think that the uh, most fascinating bit of it all is her foray into LSD with Cary yes. Grant. Do tell. Okay. So in 1959, Cary Grant actually was in this issue of Look Magazine. And he was doing something that people were just completely like baffled by. He was talking about like therapy and, you know, his mental health. And he had always been kind of stoic and not, you know, one to really share his personal life. But all of a sudden – He's in there talking about how because of LSD therapy, he's the closest he's ever been to happiness. I wanted to rid myself of all my hypocrisies. I wanted to work through the events of my childhood, my relationships with my parents and my former wives. But he didn't want to spend years in analysis. He wanted to fast track all of that. Um, And it turns out LSD was his path to doing that. And so... Even in the Good Housekeeping uh, issue of September 1960, they said it was the secret to his second youth. So he was like having a resurgence, having a great time, being written up. And Esther Williams was like, "Uh, excuse me? (laughs) Uh, I know (laughs) Cary Grant, and that sounds amazing. So she just called him up and said, you know, I want to know all about this uh, LSD situation. Hmm. And uh, he's like, yeah, do it, do it, do it. And so she (laughs) – You got a quote from him? Yeah, Yeah. do it, do it, do it. it." He said, it's a tremendous jolt to your mind, to your ego. Esther was like, I need this. Like, I've got a lot of trauma in my life, obviously. She had had a hard uh, upbringing, and she had had her brother who died. And so she decided to do it. And so she took her little blue pills – And she says, with my eyes closed, I felt my tension and resistance ease away as the hallucinogen swept through me. Then, without warning, I went right to the place where the pain lay in my psyche. She returned to the day when she was eight years old and her beloved brother had died. And so she said that under LSD, she saw her father's face as a ceramic plate And it splintered into a tiny million pieces like a windshield when a rock goes through it. 
and then she saw her mother's face and like all of her uh, tensions had hardened. And she realized that ever since the day her brother had died, her life had been consumed by the necessity to replace him. So this is why she actually got into the movies. Oh. Um, and then so she's she's like still having this time, but the evening is, is not over. As she uh, said goodnight to her parents, she went to her bedroom. She looked in the mirror and she was startled by a split image. One half of her face, the right half, was her. And the other half was the face of a 16-year-old boy. And so the left side of her upper body was flat and muscular. And she reached up. And she actually, um, she said she could feel her penis, which is very interesting. Uh, but she doesn't know how long she stood there. But she says that she understood perfectly that when Stanton had died, she had taken him into her life so completely that he had become a part of her. Whoa. Yeah. That is a successful trip. Right? Um, But, and she, so after that, she said she didn't want to, she wanted to get through that. She did not want to live like her parents had lived where it had just consumed them and made them sad. She really wanted to work past it. Um. So yeah, I thought that, that was, was really interesting. So Esther, you know, she lived in Hollywood for the rest of her life. Um, she passed away in 2013, so not that long ago. Um, but she had lived an interesting Hollywood life and dabbled in LSD. So cool, LSD. LSD replaces therapy, right, Esme? <laughs> right, like, Esme. Are you? Are you? Are you worried? You're just baiting me, and yeah, I, I was. I, I... Esme was quiet. I was like, "What's she gonna say?" No, I, I want to know what you have to say because I've I've seen it's coming up more and more now. Like I've actually been getting like ads on Instagram and stuff for like ketamine therapy and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, so I, I, I'm interested. Well, I have two. I have something to say for the 19. 19- 50s and I have something to say for today. Okay. So, uh, um, so at the time, there were no evidence-based treatments for PTSD. We were still calling it shell shock most of the time. Mm. People didn't think women could get it. People didn't think that rape caused it. Mm. Right. They thought Whoa. it was only from battle. So it was just a problem that soldiers had. You know, and obviously you didn't mention sexual trauma, um, but I can imagine that she had some. She yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't think you have that story that you just mentioned without that being in there. And obviously right. she had plenty of other traumas as well. Mm-hmm. So she really didn't have anything available to her from, you know, the quote unquote science of psychiatry and psychology at the time that could have been helpful. So I'm just like, man, I'm glad that she had that relationship with Gary Grant. And I'm glad that you know, drugs do lots of things to lots of people. And I'm glad that it was a healing experience to her. I think she could have had a similar experience probably from like a spiritual experience or a religious experience, right? Mm-hmm. It was like something mm-hmm. that brought her to a place where she could find some peace. Process and that's awesome. it at all, right? Exactly. And have the time to process it. So that totally makes sense. Would be this be the first thing that I would prescribe to somebody in 2021 with PTSD? The answer would be no. <laughs> um so 
<laughs> lots of specific forms of behavior therapy that have a ton of evidence that can be very, very helpful. Um, this thing called prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy are the top two that I that I would recommend. When you look at the data on like ketamine therapy, or there's also like um, uh, MDMA therapy for PTSD, mm-hmm. the um, important piece of that is that it's generally for people who have like treatment resistant PTSD. So mm. if they, um, but unfortunately, a lot of people don't get the evidence-based treatments. This is like one of my, this is why Anne was like, yeah, it's right as me. She's totally baiting me. Um, (laughs) This is one of my big things that unfortunately there's a lot of gobbledygook out there in the mental health landscape that is not helpful to people. um, And they don't get the things that actually are shown by science to be helpful. I am not an expert in psychedelic assisted treatment at all. um, But I would recommend to somebody, if somebody just asked me, I would recommend getting one of those evidence-based psychotherapies first and seeing Mm -hmm. if that helped you. Um, And if it didn't, then looking into ways to supplement it. That's good advice. Yeah. (laughs) But that's awesome for her that she had, I mean, like what a, what a gift that she had something at a time when really, you know, I'm glad she didn't try to see a psychiatrist because he would have just, you know, laid her on a couch and told her that she was jealous of all the men in her life. Right. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm also just amazed that she like was able to speak about it with such honesty and really mm-hmm. kind of um, t- to speak her truth. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Thank you, Allison. Yeah. Yeah, Esther, cool. yeah she's an interesting lady. Um, I totally forgot to do my creme de cacao special report, but Bloomheads have been asking, are y'all down <laughs> with a little quickie? Yeah. yeah, like real, not the one that you're having. <laughs> this is real creme de cacao. I yeah. just finished my fake creme de cacao and I want more. You guys, it's so good. I, I don't believe you, but I'm glad you're happy, Jody. The real creme de cacao is very different. It's a chocolate liqueur. So not to be confused with like sweet and creamy desserty drinks. Like the first thing, the first thing I pictured was something like Bailey's or like a chocolate martini. It is not that. Okay. Uh, It can either be clear or brown, and it's just pure, direct from the cacao bean. There are two ways to make it. You can have it percolated or distilled. The percolated kind is the more brown version, and it's made just like you would make coffee. You take the beans and then the filter, and then you drip alcohol through it. The distilled way is distilling the cacao so you heat it and you basically are collecting the condensation and then you Mm. soak it and then you macerate it and then you add more cacao and some vanilla beans and this is the clear kind and um, I think this is considered like the better kind but I'm not quite sure we might have to do a taste test the creme de part of creme de cacao doesn't mean there's cream I think a lot of people might think that the creme de just means that it's got a high sugar content. So there has to be a specific amount of sugar for a liqueur to be creme de whatever, creme de menthe, creme de mm-hmm. cacao. It's about 20 to 25% alcohol. You can drink it straight Whoa. in yeah. cocktails <laughs> or in dessert. I wonder if she got drunk. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. This had me thinking about what was mom drinking? Was she just drinking it straight? Did she have some kind of special Cuban cocktail? I 
Googled and Googled and Googled, and I really couldn't find any strong, clear connection with creme de cacao and Havana. I thought maybe like this would be the signature drink or something, but Mm. I think it's probably mentioned mostly because Havana, especially at the time, you know, had such a booming cocktail scene. It was the place to go and like have drinks that you couldn't get in your hometown of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and cacao, you know, it had been grown in Cuba since the Spaniards came. So it was readily available. Uh, there was one cocktail that popped up a few times, the Donceita, mm. meaning little lady. And this was, this was a little shady here, but it's creme de cacao straight up with heavy cream on top and a maraschino cherry. <laughs> So that's a lot. That's very heavy. Uh, It was known for helping, you know, the women get a little looser, let their hair down, leading to their undoing in quotes. Will ya, will ya, will ya. Yep. Will ya, will ya, will ya. Uh, It tasted like a milkshake. So I think a lot of people didn't really know what they were getting into. So yikes. (laughs) <laughs> but also <laughs> delicious but also no wonder she puked yeah right heavy cream is not yeah. cream. just like oh give me all the dairy and alcohol together mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so i think we got to the bottom of that she had a donceita yeah Definitely. i think that's likely little lady for the little lady <laughs> <laughs> so um i think that might be it i think we gotta call it yeah that. <laughs> i have one last thing to say i promise this is the last uh i don't know if y'all remember but you know there were quite a few yiddish phrases and words that we weren't mm-hmm. sure of the pronunciations i think we got most of them close but one that we just couldn't find an answer to was I'm going to spell it for you before I tell you how it's pronounced the m-u-m-e-s-h-a-n-a one i know that one I'm married Jews. Now I'm going to be, I'm going to get in trouble if it's, uh, my in-laws will be mad if I say it wrong. Um, can I guess what you got? And then we'll see yeah, if you guess. A- accurate. I think it's Momashena. That's right. Okay, good. Phew. Yes, you are All right. right. <laughs> well, that's so interesting because I, you know, there's really not a lot. Maybe Judy spelled it in an alternative spelling, but when mm. I typed it in, hardly anything popped up except the book. So I huh. wondered if it, that was like a very specific pet name that maybe, you know, Ma Fanny had made up. But if you you've used it in your family, so obviously it's a thing. Yeah, I think it's mostly just my in-laws, my kids' grandparents will use it to my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just means like, you know, dear or darling or something like that. Well, sweetie. Well, like Shana Punam means like what a face. Like your your is like the bottom part of your face, like not your eyes, like your nose and mouth. And so it's like pretty face or, you know, what a face. And so pretty nose and mouth. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it's like, you know, little, little, little cute one kind of thing. Oh, I love that. Mumashena. I mean, I think we I think we doubted ourselves like we were saying it right. And then we overthought it and we were like, (laughs) Mumashena. So I'm glad we circled back. Awesome. Hi, I said I like babushka. Uh. <laughs> um, and then we're going to end the episode with Little Lucy's Waterbug Special Report. But before that, 
Thank you all so much for joining us, Stuck in Stony Brook ladies. It was our pleasure. I I very much enjoy talking about animals having sex and boobies. (laughs) Yay! Yeah. Super fun. And I totally think there's no, you know, just like there's no Judy without Beverly Cleary, there's no Anna Martin without Judy Bloom. So I think it's um it's just really fun. Uh, Esme else has her. to say something sincere and nice and boobies. And uh you want to tell everyone where to find you, where to find your podcasts. Yeah, totally. We are um, stuck in Stony Brook on all the podcast platforms. We come out every other Thursday and uh, we're on Instagram at stuck in Stony Brook. Um, And that's pretty much it. We don't really do anything else on social media. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have a TikTok where we like do like babysitters club dances or anything. Ooh, I would love that. Maybe we should. I'm we're Mm. so close to having like long drawn out explainer videos on TikTok. Get in there before the kids do it. Come on. We could explain like uh, the fake slang words that they have in Stony Brook, like distant and dibbly on TikTok and maybe see if people could start using it like chuggy. Distant. We have yet to announce what book we're reading next. It's narrowed down to two Beverly's. So stay tuned for that. Follow us on Instagram. We'll announce it there. Also our Facebook. And we're up to 99 Apple podcast reviews. So you guys are really coming through a hundred by July. It's we're so close. Oh, don't you want to be the hundredth review everybody that would, I feel like that's a really cool place to be. I think, I think a special (laughs) prize is in order for the hundredth. I love this idea. It's going to be Anne tonight. You guys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What about like a hundred dollars? I was thinking a sticker, but (laughs) Love that too. All right, everybody. Thank you so much, Jody Nelson. Thank you. Woo! All right, I'm gonna hit stop. This is Lucy Favor from the podcast Reading with My Daughter. Here's my special report on water bugs from the Bloom Saloon podcast. Water. Water bugs are often called roaches. That, but that's just due to their appearance. It would be like saying Dr. Pepper and root beer are the same thing because they're both dark liquids. A real water bug is a different order of insects called Nepomorpha. Be careful around them because sometimes they can give a painful bite. It feels like it's burning and can last a few hours. One time there was a big water bug in my dad's dorm room when he was in college and he didn't sleep at all. Perhaps if he had me around, he would have been smarter. Water bugs are are usually bigger than cockroaches. Water bugs have wings, but don't fly often. They like to live near lakes, rivers, streams that have plants growing in them. They eat they eat bugs, small fish, and frogs. the The best part about water bugs they are solitary creatures. They don't hang out in groups. If you like if you like eating Thai food, then you're then you've probably eaten a water bug. Many people eat them boiled or deep fried, and many dishes use the essence of a water bug too. The male has a, a sweeter aroma, so so it gets used most of the time for its essence. 
even though it's not a water bug. There's a children's novel called Shoe Bag about a cockroach that turns into a little boy. We might have to read this on our podcast because I want to find out if the cockroach can speak or if it just sounds like a cockroach. Thank you for listening.